When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. We may be having a case here where Mattis and Kelly are just sort of kind of not listening to Donald Trump. In this case, what we have is the art of the bluff. This is what Trump does all the time, you know. As far as I'm concerned, it's like he's playing battleship in between golf games at his golf course. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Josh King, author of Offscript, hosting this weekend's show with fire and fury the likes of which the world has never seen. Trumpcast is the show about the man who attaches himself to phrases he thinks roll off his tongue, like the failing New York Times and Amazon Washington Post, and new to prominence in the lexicon, the aforementioned the likes of which we've never seen. On Tuesday of this week, in a cramped conference room at his clubhouse at the Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, with his wife sitting to his left and his Health and Human Services Secretary to his right, our president used that phrase four times, twice regarding the opioid crisis in America and twice in relation to the escalating nuclear crisis with North Korea. Two very different crises, one very handy, all-encompassing, exclamatory phrase. They will be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. When grafted onto another phrase, fire and fury, it initiated an immediate chain reaction that sent the dog days of August and a short photo op intended to show Trump at work rather than playing golf into a near media meltdown, scrambled B-1 bombers into the air above Guam, and sent shudders among the roughly 10 million people who live in Seoul, South Korea. The White House press pool follows the president wherever he is for just this sort of moment. Unexpected news. This was Trump on camera making a declarative statement about North Korea's menace that left itself open to a hundred interpretations. Were those words fire and fury composed earlier? a strategic gambit conceived by the National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster in consultation with the new Chief of Staff John Kelly, coordinated with the Secretary of Defense James Mattis, and vetted past the Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. That's how he might have done it in the olden days, during the presidencies of Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, or Barack Obama, where every word was calculated and calibrated. Or, in this case... Did they just happen to pop into the president's head? To find out the answer to that defining question, we look to two groups of individuals, and I'll just drop a few of their names. Ashley Parker, Philip Rucker, and Greg Sargent of the Washington Post, and Michael Schmidt, Peter Baker, and the -the round-the-clock presence that is Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. And there are many other names beyond those six at those two great news organizations, that give us our first line of inquiry and interpretation of what's going on both at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and, more precisely, in the head of one Donald J. Trump. 
James Warren, chief media writer at Pointer, asks in a long piece in the recent issue of Vanity Fair, is the New York Times versus the Washington Post versus Trump the last great newspaper war? It's a question that, whatever the answer, leaves us all a lot smarter as a result. What's motivating the owners, editors, and writers of those two-storied franchises to get to the heart of the biggest story of our age? We'll ask Jim Warren after the break. I can't tell you that, but you could tell me that. No, I have to do this my way. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. That's Robert Redford as Bob Woodward and Hal Holbrook as Deep Throat in All the President's Men. And I'm joined by James Warren, Pointer's chief media writer and the former managing editor and Washington bureau chief of the Chicago Tribune. He's also the former Washington bureau chief of the New York Daily News, those among the many other ways we've gotten to know Jim Warren over the years. He's in Vanity Fair magazine with a long new piece called Is the New York Times versus the Washington Post versus Trump the Last Great Newspaper War? And just a quick programming note, this is the first of a two-part interview with Jim. Stay tuned to our podcast feed for part two of our talk, which we will post tomorrow. Jim joins us today from the studios of WBEZ in Chicago. Welcome, Jim, to the program. Hey, great to uh, be here, and thanks for that uh, dramatic opening. I can't, uh, I can't match that. So much has happened in just a few weeks since your piece appeared in Vanity Fair. There was the hiring of Scaramucci, the firing of Priebus, the hiring of Kelly, bait the press, as you call it, with Stephen Miller, the firing of Scaramucci, the president's initiation of a new war with Richard Blumenthal, Mitch McConnell, and now maybe Kim Jong-un. How equipped to cover all of this, even with their beefed up staffs, are the New York Times and the Washington Post? They're, I think they're very well equipped, as a matter of fact. I mean, both in both cases, staffing is um, roughly at historic highs. In the case of the New York Times, it's around 1,300, which is still many more than the Washington Post, which is somewhere in the mid-700s. So they've, they've, they've got the, the armies of folks to do it. I think in each case now, they've got de facto all-star teams at the White House, um, you know, I think about six reporters each. That's unusual. You know, you increasingly have had, you know, at, at one, I mean, maximum one person for most places. And then as the newspaper industry has um, plummeted, you know, you have many situations with one person washing bureaus and that person is a jack or jill of all trades and will, you know, pop into the White House occasionally but not be there all, all the time. Was this an easy pitch for you to Greg and Carter? I mean, it lends itself to so many Vanity Fair type things, great pictures, past and present, and all the stories that sort of Graydon would love to write about in his publisher's note at the beginning. How, why did you decide to write this piece and was Vanity Fair the right place for it? Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't hard. I mean, I have a um, pre-existing relationship with them. I do a early, very early morning media newsletter that goes out as a free email by the Pointer Institute and goes out roughly around 8 a.m. Uh, Eastern time. And uh, I don't know, it's about a year, year, year and a half ago, out of the blue, Vanity Fair called and asked if they could co-host the newsletter. 
So I uh, that took about uh, one and a half seconds <laughs> to say yeah. Um, and uh, what what that basically means is that after I uh, have have moved that newsletter and after I've woken up uh, the kids, wake up the kids and give breakfast and get them to on the school bus. I then uh, circle back to home and revise it slightly, put it into the vanity fair system. So that's five times a week. I'm, you know, it's a bit of a known quantity. I had done a long piece for them last summer when everybody assumed that uh, Hillary Clinton would win on um, former journalist turned author and um, full-time Clinton supporter Sidney Blumenthal. That was a long, long piece. So um, they had asked about my doing other stuff. You know, I've got a day job. I've got kids. And uh, at one point, I, I just sent basically a one-line note saying, you know, what about the last newspaper war? And the response came in about five minutes. I, it is a great piece. I I ran off a litany of major moments uh, in the intro just in the last few weeks. I forgot to mention a couple wild ones. The printing in full in the Washington Post of transcripts of phone calls between the president and the prime minister of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, and the president of Mexico, Enrique Peña Nieto. I don't know if we've ever seen a transcript like that printed in a major paper. And then the trashing of the sitting attorney general, Jeff Sessions, which came as a result of an interview in the Oval Office with Peter Baker, Glenn Thrush, or Michael Schmidt and Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. I want to hear a little bit of Trump expounding to the, the Times threesome. Get your reaction to it. Was that a mistake? Well, Session should have never recused himself. And if he, would, if he was going to recuse himself, he should have told me before he took the job, and I would have picked somebody else. Mm-hmm. He gave you no heads up at all. Mm-hmm. Zero. It doesn't sound exactly like the Nixon smoking gun tape, Jim Warren, but presidents often occupy a world in the public persona that is controlled by former flax like me, people on the White House communication staff. These are carefully crafted moments designed to be consumed in apportioned nibbles. But being able to read all of the transcript of those phone calls with Turnbull and Pinonetto and listening to Haberman sort of coax Trump out of his shell to either talk about adoption or trashing Jeff Sessions. Is this a new kind of journalism or back to something that we haven't seen since Woodward and Bernstein? No, I mean, I think it's a new kind of presidency. I mean, I I think those are all the sorts of questions, the modus operandi that great reporters like that trio that was in the Oval Office for the New York Times would have asked, um, you know, uh, previous presidents. I mean, they would have they would have been no less forthright. They would have been no more aggressive in trying to tease provocative responses. The difference is here, you know, they 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 get them. Uh, that took place, I think, maybe around July 19th, 20th or something like that, around the third week in, in July. And I, we, I had uh, sent the piece in, you know, a week or two earlier. And, uh, you know, that was one of several instances in which I emailed Colin Murphy, the editor on the piece, or he emailed, emailed me and said, do you think we should like somehow insert such and such? And it was like every day. Every day there was something. And, uh, you know, finally we had a drop-dead deadline. We had to 
to say uh, no to some stuff, but that got in at the the very last moment. Unfortunately, one of my favorite quotes of the piece we we had to to eliminate just for space reasons. But I've joked with uh, Mary Flynn, the the wonderful copy editor on the piece, and they did an incredibly rigorous job. I mean, you've you've got to everything's got to check out with them. It's really it's, it's sort of reassuring their focus on uh, precision. But I've joked with her saying, you know, if you keep that darn piece online. You could update it every single day, and she, I, and she wrote back very quickly. Uh, you know, every hour, <laughs> and uh, I think she's right. These meditations with President Trump seem to happen on Thursdays and Fridays. I think that thing happened uh, late in the week, and even this week. You know, Trump seems to have a radar for when his own message is not getting out to his satisfaction. I think he stood on the steps of his golf club in Bedminster today and expounded for about 20 minutes on all the topics that seem to be welling up both in reporters and also in the in the White House staff. What's your sense of when Trump is itchy to chat and when he summons Maggie Haberman and Michael Schmidt and Peter Baker in or says, gather round pool, I'm going to talk on the steps of, of my club at Bedminster. I, you know, I have not discerned a, a, you know, a sort of temporal pattern like that. I mean, I, I find it to be almost 24-7, and it's usually when he feels aggrieved and wants to, you know, like today, lambaste uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, um, or when he feels he's uh, being mistreated in the press. And, you know, some, some of this stuff has happened on weekends. As we know, some of it's happened in late-night tweets. Some of it has happened simultaneous with his being analyzed on cable news morning shows and then bingo at 6.15 Eastern time, 10 minutes after, you know, fill in the blank with the name of the host. Could it be Chris Cuomo on CNN or Mika Brzezinski on MSNBC? But bingo, 10, 15 minutes later, there there is something. But it, it also brings up the, the whole interesting dynamic, doesn't it, as I'm thinking of those three times reporters uh, in the Oval Office and then juxtaposing that with Trump's uh, many, many emails, you know, trashing the, quote, failing New York Times. But he so craves their attention and their legitimacy and ultimately so craves their support. He would do anything for a nice editorial. I grew up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan and... Um, you know, it, it's almost like the sort of insecure kid from Queens, you know, still, you know, so desperately wants to make it in the big city, you know, in, in i.e. Manhattan. And I, I think there's some element of that there with 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 the times. He so wants to be loved by them. You remember most of the interviews he gave, most of the sessions he had after the election prior to the inauguration in Trump Tower that folks came to him. In the case of the New York Times, he went to the Times. You know, as if on in, in one level to pay to pay homage to them. An eternal search for affirmation. The relationship that you paint between President Trump and Maggie Haberman is like a, a patient and a psychiatrist in a small office. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, she's covered him for a while. Not, you know, she didn't cover him full time when she was at the New York Post and New York Daily News, but you know, a, a, enough for him to be very conscious of her. And she's, you know, a wonderfully sort of old-fashioned, relentless reporter. And, um, you know, I, I think she really in some some way has kind of gotten into his head. 
and and understands him quite well and understands the rhythms of Trump and, and understands how to sort of annotate him and, uh, you know, add her to a mix of at least just at the White House of, of, of five other terrific reporters and then, you know, a wonderful infrastructure both in Washington and New York of, of editors. And uh, it, it's a pretty potent combo. You begin your piece in Vanity Fair, Jim Warren, by comparing the Post in times like Generals Patton and Montgomery racing to be the first to capture Messina. And you have, as an example, Peter Baker, one of those five, aboard Air Force One, just trying to keep up with the latest skirmish on another front. Paint that picture of us from the perspective of someone like yourself who has run newsrooms, deploying your battalions to win the day on tomorrow's front page. Yeah, well, it's... um in the during the Clinton era in, in the nineties, I was the Chicago Tribune bureau chief. We had about twenty folks. We were the first combination print television bureau, in fact, in in Washington. Tribune broadcasting. Bill Nykirk so, covered us. Very large presence. Great guy. I mean, yeah. I had it. I had my own all star team of of terrific folks. Um, and you know we were we were nationally known, but you know we were still basically a big regional paper that didn't have uh, the 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 resources of the Times or the Post to play at that level every single day. But on on you know if you know if we were smart and picked and chose and chose our fights, we we could. And so there was a, a lot of there was a, a lot of competitive pressure, but it was of a different order than one finds now. I mean, back then in the 90s, if we would go to the White House and Bill Clinton would say something significant, you know, if it was two or three in the afternoon and you were a, a daily newspaper in, in the year before the internet, well, you still had four or five hours to write your story. What's going on now where, you know, you may be sitting at the news event and having to tweet out the gist of it, or attempt after a source, uh, you know, tells you something interesting. Doesn't have to be as dramatic as uh, you know, follow the money. But uh, once a source has told you something, you know, you'll you'll call your editor and says, you know, should we tweet this out first? That that is a um, a level of intensity that is far beyond what I knew. Uh, though I, I I got a I got a pretty good dose of it uh, in two recent years when I was back in Washington for the for the New York Daily News. But I think the the bureau chiefs now have uh, significantly greater challenge because you're you're operating on uh, multi platforms and it's not a matter of waiting to see what's in the first edition of your chief rival. It's you you know you got to go to dinner and 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 have your phone on the table to see if uh, the person you're competing with at the White House, at the State Department, at the Defense, Defense Department has just beaten you to the punch on a story. You know, I, I think by and large, it has made for a lot of terrific journalism. I think by and large, uh, as Dean Baquet, the, the editor of the Times, has said, you know, competition is still a very much unexplored relevant topic in, in American journalism. But what has played out with these two guys has um, underscored Conversely, what one tends not to find on the local level, certainly newspaper industry around the country. On that very topic, Jim, the business angle of this battle, annual newspaper ad revenues, as you wrote in your piece, have fallen from a high of, uh, I think, $49 billion in 2009 to $18 billion last year. Jeff Bezos bought the post for a modest $250 million in 2013. 
Here he is three years later reflecting on why he did that. You know, I watched with my grandfather, who was an amazing man, and I could tell you grandfather stories forever. I'm blessed with amazing role models, and my grandfather was certainly one of them. Uh, we called him Pop, and, and uh, I spent most of my summers when, as young, from like age four to age 16, with him on his ranch in South Texas. But we sat on the living room floor. He would always watch TV laying on the living room floor, and we watched the Watergate hearings on the, uh, together for you know, a long time. Um, he was riveted by them. And I, you know, I've always believed, and I think a lot of, I know it's, a rare, it's not a rare belief, I think a lot of us believe this, that democracy dies in darkness, that certain institutions uh, have a very important role in making sure that there is light. And I think the Washington Post has a seat an important seat to do that because we happen to be located here in the capital city of the United States of America. Jim Warren, democracy dies in darkness. How is Jeff Bezos doing so far? Is it like the rest of his empire, except uh, smaller margins and win on scale? Well, that's the that's the basic strategy. But this is, uh, you know, a drop in the bucket for him on the very day that he bought um, Whole Foods uh, a few weeks back. Uh, that day, just his personal stake in uh, Amazon went up, I think, about two and a half billion dollars, two and a half billion dollars in one day. And, you know, as you said, he bought the uh, the post for, you know, one tenth of of that price. But I think if you look at this in um, in the context of a paper that was troubled, it was lethargic. Uh, there had been a round of buyouts, and uh, the owner, uh, the, the chief executive, Donald Graham, was desperately sort of looking to get out and find somebody. When you now uh, look back uh, a few years later, you know, you can argue that there has been a renaissance there. And it's not just an editorial on the editorial side. It's also on the technological side. He has put in huge sums of money on the technological infrastructure there and the perspective being consuming news has got to be as easy as it is to buy a bicycle, a baseball glove, uh, other merchandise, food on, on Amazon. Uh, the load factors have to be the best and they are right now. And there's a lot of other technology which he has created, not just for the post, but also then to, to sell to, to other folks. Now, there's a larger larger financial uh, backdrop here and for sure the post with bezos and the times which has a you know very different type of ownership you know publicly owned company the post now is is privately held but the new york times is publicly owned we're in the fifth generation of the uh, selzberger family no doubt that the two of them are better off than most papers in that they really do have, by and large have unique valuable content that's desired by a lot of different uh, American and global elites, whether it's in business, government, academia, culture, news business. As such, they have been able to grow their subscription businesses at a, a much, much higher, faster rate than the typical local paper. At the same time, <laughs> you step back, the New York Times, good for them, has now a digital base of around 2 million paid subscribers, which is terrific, but they're also like, I think, one billion internet users who speak English, one billion internet users in the world. So that's like, you know, 0.2% of that group. And, you know, where they're at in the next 10 years when there is the distinct possibility 
that the, the, the core revenue source of, of all of these business, the print edition, perhaps is eliminated, and you don't have that revenue coming in, that is the real question that I sort of I, I try to pose at the end, and one really doesn't know. And and that you, I pose that question along with what I think are, are is a, are a question or two that comes out of I think the very effective Trump trashing attempt to devalue and delegitimize the media, which is uh, you know where are these two proud institutions going to be when um, you know a guy like Trump is so able to cast everything they do as somehow, quote, fake news. It's, it's part of our lexicon now. And where did that come from? That just came up in, in the last you know, year or so. Uh, one can't, cannot lose sight of the, the battle the two of them face as, as the President of the United States attempts to undermine the basic notions of fairness and of, of uh, standards. Trump is actually, this is cliche, but he's he's the biggest uh, supporter of what Dean Begay and Marty Barron are really doing. Here's Begay at this year's Code Conference explaining how both the Post and the Times are enjoying so much access to, not necessarily to the president, but to members of his administration. I think it's two things. Um, first, this administration is doing stuff that sort of has upset the permanent government of Washington, the people who are you know, who exist in agency roles, whether it's at the EPA or the Pentagon or the intelligence community. Dean Begay, Jim Warren, had made a couple stops in his career, talked about him as a newsroom leader. And if if Bezos and The Post are sort of leading the way on technology, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation the dramatic difference in the number of journalists uh, on the payroll. Talk about the storytelling of The Times under the newsroom leadership of Begay. Well, I mean, he's got a background as a terrific investigative reporter in uh, New Orleans, later at uh, as a colleague of mine at the Chicago Tribune, where he was part of a particular uh, political investigation that won a, a Pulitzer Prize. He moved on to editing at uh, the New York Times, at the Los Angeles Times, where he was the editor-in-chief, uh, got into uh, quite a, a public fight with his bosses who were back in Chicago, then Tribune Company, was fired, but quickly wound up with uh, back at the, the New York Times running the Washington Bureau and then moved up in the, in the pecking order. Um, there, there's a tendency to, to compare him to Marty Barron, a, a figure who folks may know of more than they do back, hey, largely because of the Academy Award winning movie Spotlight. And stylistically, there are some differences. I mean, back Hay is sort of more sort of like, I don't know, you know, he's got a bit of maitre d' in him uh, as he works a newsroom. He's, you know, sort of very hands-on, very likable, doesn't necessarily spend, you know, tons of time cloistered in, in his uh, in his office. And he's uh, got a whole lot of backbone, tremendous amount of nerve and uh, knows how to deploy a uh, you know a large staff a- as he has at the same time you know there are dark clouds above it's rather remarkable you know some of the figures say last year the the new york times revenue was like 1.6 billion 1.6 billion just by comparison facebook's was 33 billion dollars. New York Times pre-tax profit was around 220 225 million. Facebook's was um I think 18 or 19, I think 18 
billion dollars. Um, their market values, as we speak, New York Times around three billion. Facebook's is around four hundred eighty-eight billion. And one cannot forget the um, the comparison with Bezos here on the on the the financial side because it's something that really impacts the lives of Dean Baquet and Marty Baron because they've got to work within budgets and those budgets are not going to necessarily you know dramatically exponentially expand in coming years i mean the post is more fortunate because you know it's got bezos so you know it potentially has almost unlimited resources to develop content and audience and technology and you know create new revenue streams possibly the times is at far greater risk. I mean, in addition to not having a patron like that, like Bezos, it's subject to all the usual quarterly financial expectations uh, that Wall Street puts upon any public company, plus the uncertainty of how long will this amazing family cohesion remain? You know, how long will, will all the key players maintain their commitment to supporting this great American institution. We all probably know businesses in our communities. It could be corner drugstore, something bigger, in which you know you get to the second, third generation, people want to cash out, or it's a publicly held company, and the stock starts going down. You go, wait a second, I got college tuitions to pay, and then next thing you know, they're a hiring investment banker and and selling. It is amazing. That we're in the fifth generation now of the Times, and it's their only revenue stream, remember? Only revenue stream. It's not like Bezos, who's charging, you know, 65, 70 million of us Americans, what is it, you know, 100 bucks for Amazon Prime and making tons of money off the cloud. This is their only revenue stream. That's it for today's show. We've covered the first half of our conversation with Jim Warren about the New York Times and the Washington Post. We will post the second half tomorrow in the podcast feed. We always want to know what you're thinking about the show. Tweet at us at RealTrumpCast to give us your thoughts. That's at RealTrumpCast. And you can find me on Twitter at Polyoptics. I know it's a weird name, but I made it up. TrumpCast is produced by Jason DeLeon and I'm Josh King. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.